you got to forget yourself to find yourself. And so when you forget yourself in service, when you are given what you are, when you have to offer to the world for no reason, just to do it because it's the right thing to do, it's for the greatest good, for the highest good, you have to find yourself. And so there's this kind of paradox of being your best self. And sometimes some of us might be selfish and we're only thinking about ourselves, but then there's some of us that are selfless, don't think enough about ourselves. We may have to be ourselves and then be selfish to be selfless, if that makes any sense. Greetings and a warm welcome to Intersections. Our commitment here is to allow all of us to open new doors, new pathways towards understanding our full potential by dissolving the boundaries, eliminating the constraints, taking us out of any single box. And today, it is my great joy and privilege to have in our midst George Mumford, who is one of these individuals who has been doing this across the arc of a very luminous life. George is a globally recognized speaker, a sports psychologist, mindfulness coach, and a very influential author. For the last three decades, he has taught the art of performance and mindfulness to people from every walk of life, CEOs, Olympians, NBA superstars, to even the underrepresented. George has helped many of his champion clients transform their careers and their leadership, including Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Shaquille O'Neal, and he's presented to some of the world's top brands like Nike and Google, PayPal, Amex, and Lululemon. He's written two books, The Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance, and Unlocked, Embrace Your Greatness, Find the Flow, and Discover Success, which has been published very recently in May of this year. With a passion for teaching and helping others learn about resilience and social responsibility and navigating uncertainty, George has created several masterclasses, including the Mindful Athlete course for his online community. He has been featured in leading media, including 60 Minutes, ABC News, The Huffington Post, and The Boston Globe, and was included on Good Morning America's inspiration list for Black History Month in 2021. George, real joy and pleasure to have you in our midst. Thank you for joining us. And I'm so happy you had me in mind to be involved in this process, to be able to share with your audience. Thank you. You know, I want to start with a quote that you have at the very top of your book. You know, this is a quote from Joseph Campbell, and and, and it says, uh, yeah, it's a very provocative proposition. You know, it says, this, I believe, is the great Western truth, that each of us is a complete, unique creature, and that if we are ever to give any gifts to the world, it will have to come out of our own experience and fulfillment of our own potentialities, not someone else's. Can you, can you weigh in on that? Like, what compelled you to be so invested in an idea and a thought like that? And why do you think it's a really important message for us to hear today? Yes, thank you. So the, it was an interesting time in my life where I'm coming up on 39 years of sobriety, July 30th. And I remember I was, when I was, I got clean, I had been clean for maybe a year or two. And I think at that point, I'm trying to think of five. Maybe I was going, I went back to graduate school and studied health and psychology. And I remember going home at night and watching The Power of Myth, listening to, to Joseph Campbell. And what I heard him say was, follow your bliss. 
And so I was working as a financial analyst at the time. I worked in corporations under that title for about, or, or various titles, but in the, in the finance world, uh, being a financial analyst, cost analyst. And it gave me the wherewithal to realize that I needed to follow my bliss. I needed to, to listen to my own unique self and, and follow that passion. So I, I ended up leaving my job and for two years, I was just trying to figure out who I wanted to be when I grew up. So this idea of me, I was really good at being a financial analyst, but my heart wasn't in it. And so I had to listen to what my heart was telling me and follow my bliss. You know, I follow, get in touch. And that I was in the process of doing that. That's why I was able to hear his message is this idea of tuning in and inside out process and listening to my heart and asking myself, you know, where's my passion? You know, where's my heart? Follow the heart, follow your bliss. So that's what I did. And it, and it came to, instead of analyzing uh, numbers, being able to help people unlock, really, I think, based on my on my book, because that's what I was doing. I was uh, imprisoned in my own way around addiction and, and then chronic pain. And so I overcome that, I discovered that that the adversity and the difficulties, those are, and he said that in the, in the power of myth, your heart, you, your, your life is where your pain is. And so it's like, it's the only way out is always true. So they just realize that I have this masterpiece within and my job is to access that and then express my, my unique self, my uniqueness, because, because there's no one like me. And by accessing my potentials and, and my gifts, then that I can offer that to the world. And, and that's what I decided to do is to do that. And so this has been a, a long well, a journey, maybe not long because depending on geographical time or whatever, you know, 39 years, four decades is not that long, but it's been very joyous. And I will say that because I've been able to do it and learning how to do it more and more, I feel more enthusiastic and excited about life than I ever have. So that continues to grow. So even though my body is not the same as it was 40 years ago, my my mind, my heart, my spirit are strong. I want to come back to your personal story because, I mean, it is incredibly powerful. And, um, you know, let's make some time, you know, in the course of the next hour to draw out some of the inspirations and um, insights you've gained from what I know has been a very eventful room for you, and you've given us a glimpse with this early kind of window into the 39-year time that you had in, in kind of moving away from drinking, right? So let's come back to that. But for now, that quote from Joseph Campbell, what's really interesting to me in how you're embracing and talking about it is that, first of all, you know, I just have like a bridge here that we can build, you know, with each other because A, Joseph Campbell started at Columbia, you know, so it's common ground for me. And B, he was very invested in the Indian scriptures and spiritual thought, you know. And yet it's irony because he's actually phrasing in this sentence, he's phrasing this as like a Western ideal, right? As as a Western thought. And and I wonder what, what, what you think of that and what sort of, um, you know, as somebody who in your own case has um, been very uh, adventurous in expanding your horizons and frontiers and borrowing from various world traditions, including those from the East, what do you feel about him uh, thinking of this as a Western truth? You know, does that mean that he's thinking that um, somehow it's, you know, it, it's gained its fullest expression in the West, would you say? I think he used that phrase because he 
his audience is mostly the people in the West. Right. People in the East have known this from a time immemorial, especially in India. I haven't been there, but from what I understand, you can feel it. And it's just something you grew up with. You don't know anything other than that if you grew up there. But here, we have not been blessed with that connection. You know, I'm speculating, but I think he's, it's because of the audience he's talking to. And then he's also going back to some of our mystics. They're, they're Eastern mystics. So all truth is the same. It may seem different, but the literature or how you learn about it, there's more written in the East than it is in the West. And so now in the West is, is is trying to catch up, but there's an embrace of the of the East. But once again, all truth is, you know, it's 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 reflected in different domains. But I think it really does come out of, from what I understand, when he talks about potentialities and that what whatnot, he's talking about the existential philosophies and and theories about that. So now we're going back to talking about Victor Franco, Eric Fromm, uh, William James. Right. And when the philosophers, like you mentioned Emerson and some of the others, that they, they've had these ideas. And so just maybe claiming it, saying that, yes, yeah, it's always been there. But when you're talking about potential and potentiality, to me, that, that reminds me of the existential philosophy and psychology and, and that. And, and I'm very familiar with those folks with that way of being or that philosophy. And I, I quote, Soren Kierkegaard a lot because he talks about one of the common or forms of despair is not being yourself. When all the existentialists, they talk about potential and making choices and, and how do you access that? You know, are you being honest you know, in terms of, of being able to accept responsibility for how you are, whether you are giving your gift to the world or are you hiding out? Well, having grown up in the East and India, I will offer at least a um, thought to you on this, which is that I think that um, one of the things in, in a culture like that, which in modern times has gotten a little bit sort of, uh, you know, muddied, is a view of, you know, taking on what is your duty, you know, in, in life and in the world. And oftentimes that has to do with conforming and behaving in a certain way, you know, in the context of your family, in the context of social expectations, and perhaps the nation and the world at large, you know, et cetera. And therefore, there is not necessarily a strong encouragement given to the nurturing of your independent, fierce kind of like spirit as much of a sense of like, this is what you're meant to do because you're you're a scientist or you're a mathematician or you're a lawyer or, you know. And so having come to America for me was a very freeing and liberating kind of moment to just uh, start to see some of these boundaries dissolve. And the funny thing is, in going through that experience, I actually ended up discovering the truth to Indian spirituality, which is exactly what you're saying. That spirituality says that you are a divine spark. And that divine spark, there's a reason that, you know, God has created you versus this other person or this other person who are meant to be clones of each other, but are meant to be unique expressions of some, some attribute of the divine. Well, I think it's interesting that you say you had to come to the West to find yourself. And then really be able to go back to what they were teaching you. But there's something about people trying to say that you should be this way. And this is one of the challenges. I mean, the, the Buddha talked about this in terms of getting to a certain level of or even getting to stream entry. If you want to talk about it that way, you know, the personality and getting rid of rituals and, and understanding the cultural frames where we we think it's a cookie cutter and everybody, you know, is like a assembly line. Everybody's the same. And even if you think about 
our educational systems and whatnot. It's yeah. like one size fits all instead of realizing everybody is different. Like yeah. we, we basically teach linguistics and logistics in terms of math and English, but there's multiple intelligences. There's enter, yeah. enter, there's emotional intelligence, there's spatial intelligence, there's intelligence that has to do with being able to track or read, you know, read and be out in nature. And so we limit what it is we value. And then we want to put everybody in the box and say, you should be like this person or that person. And it's interesting because you're talking about leadership. Initially, when I wrote my book proposal, I proposed writing a book on leadership. Publisher came back and said, no, we want you to write a book on yourself. Because my proposal was to write about leadership, but to talk about your personal development, because to be a leader, you have to be yourself. And and this is what Warren Bennis talks about in his book on becoming a leader. And so it's this idea of beginning with the individual self. All organizations begin with the individual self, but we get some communities, and I find this in the East, just like you talked about, the community is more of a focus than the individual self. But at the same time, you have to do both. You have to have the individual development of the individual self in the development of the community. So in my analogy, I talk about the me and the we. And so the we has to take precedent, but the we is only as strong as the weakest me. And so there's this really, and this is what I was talking about in my framing of leadership. Leadership is something where you share power and you empower, you you trust in, is a gentleman, uh, Stephen Covey Jr. wrote a book called Trust and Inspire. And I had the opportunity of hanging out with him in Copenhagen for the presidential summit last month, a couple of a short while ago. And that he reminded me and, and, you know, his dad talked a lot about that leadership is, you know, it's, it's like a servant leadership. You're not there for yourself. It's, it's what, if we stay in the uh, existential frame, Victor Frankl talked about self transcendence. And I say it all the time, you got to forget yourself to find yourself. And so when you forget yourself in service, when you, when you are given what you are, what you have to offer to the world for no reason, just to do it because it's the right thing to do is for the greatest good, for the highest good, you have to find yourself. And so there's this cannot, you know, this kind of paradox of, of being your best self. And sometimes some of us might be selfish and we're only thinking about ourselves, but then there's some of us that are selfless, don't think enough about ourselves, but we, we may have to be ourselves and then be selfish to be selfless, if that makes any sense. And so this is what you're, you're discovering. Everybody's path is different. That's why each person has to go inside and figure out, okay, this is my situation. This is the world that was, that I've been placed in hollow it. How am I going to make it holy? How am I going to find myself and, and share myself? But we don't talk about that. We don't really learn that in school. Our focus is on learning subjects, learning things out externally. It's not learning about, I think what we should be, what we could be learning about. I don't like the word should. We should, we can be learning about is who we are. You know, how do we relate to our mind, body, heart, and soul or spirit? We have four dimensions that we have to exercise. And so we have to understand how do I do that? How do I make sense? How do I take responsibility and say, no, I need to be who I am, not who you think I should be or who you want me to be. And believe it or not, that is the first choice a leader makes, and that is to be yourself. George, you just said, I don't like to say should. Uh, you corrected yourself midstream. What is it that uh, makes you very cautious about using that word? Yeah, because when you should, that's a judgment. And so it's, it's a subtle thing, but 
when we say, okay, this is good, this is bad, that sets up a duality and there's a part of us that's that because anything that's, you, if we want to perceive good, we're going to repress the bad. And the reality is the only, the only way out is always true. How can we have an awareness that embraces everything? And instead of saying it good or bad, saying it's helpful, it's not helpful, it's wholesome, it's not wholesome. And so we can start looking at it that way. And it's not about you should. Uh, here's a suggestion. When you say you should do something, now you're getting into a place where you have an inner conflict, where you think you should be doing this rather than doing what you know to do. Because there's some outside agency or could even be internally some some internalized because of the limbic programming. Some authority figure in the past has said something to you that you consented to being true and it's actually affecting your ability to be yourself, it's it's locking you up. Just the language you use, because language organizes our thoughts and how we see things. So the language we use is very important. So when I say should, then there's a judgment there saying, okay, no, this is what's offered. I can make this choice freely, right? Even though, you know, based on what I want to do. So I, I say to people, don't should all over yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because in some things, even though it might say, well, I should do this for what well, I have an obligation to do it, but I don't have to use the word should. I could use because I'm still making a choice. It's a free choice. I, yeah. I want to do this. I intend to do this. I'm aiming to do this. Feeling like some outside agency. So you're not wholehearted in your, in your endeavor. My spiritual teacher, Yogananda, he would say something quite similar that, um, you know, the advancement of character comes not as much from doing things because that is what, you know, should be done, but from getting to a place where you are making the right choices joyfully, joyfully. He would use the word joy. It's heartfelt and it could, it's connecting. And that's the thing. When we come from love, when we come from embracing as, and realizing that I and the other one, that just like me, that person, I was just thinking about this because we have this tendency when somebody does something, we say, well, why are they do doing that? They should be doing this other thing. And what I know from my experience is that if you see things the way people are seeing things, you would do what they do. There's a direct alignment with how people see things and what they do. And so if you want to understand somebody, just you have to be able to see things from their perspective. You don't have to agree with it, but there's 360 degrees. So depending on how you look at things and, and where you are when you're looking at things, not just physically, but mentally, and emotionally and spiritually, it's going to affect your understanding. And so we want to understand ourselves. And to me, this is the interesting thing because we, we we hide from ourselves. How do we know the secret self is inside that nobody knows about and we try to hide from people? Well, you can figure out things by noticing your attention will follow your intention. And so we have to be able to, to have this self-awareness that allows us to uncritically observe what's happening. So we can see, oh, when I do this, or when I think this way, or when I do this, then this happens. Then I have to learn from that. I have to understand that maybe before I make a choice, I have to reflect on it. Of course, this is what the Buddha did with his son. He taught him that before you do something, you have to reflect on whether it's helpful to you or others or not. And if it's not helpful to both you and the others, it's not to be done. And that's before you do it. And then there's reflecting when you're doing it. Like I would say, in real time, you can self-correct. Oh, that's not going to be helpful. And then you you dial it back or you you change course. And then afterwards, this idea of reflecting why, what worked, what did work. We need to examine that. We need to figure stuff out. We need to get clarity about 
what we did and what the consequences are and own that and realize that, that we can change. We make choices, whether we're conscious of them or not. And this is what the existentialists were really clear about is this idea of you are responsible, whether you're conscious of it or not, that you have to be conscious of it or be aware that if you're letting your unconscious or your habit patterns do things that are harmful, then if you're not aware of that, if you're not observing that, then how can you change it? And so 90% of maybe even more of what we do is is habits, uh, you know, these neural nets, these programs that we have running that are happening whether or not we're paying attention or not. And our job is to start examine what, what habit patterns are helpful, which ones are not. Not right or wrong, good or bad, but what's helpful, what's not. It's a powerful way of bringing a level of non-judgmentalism, so to say, to um, both the way you talk to audiences, but uh, also the way you talk to your own self, you know, what, what I'm hearing from you. And in some ways, George, it seems to be a fresh idea to, yeah, it's it's timeless, you know, in so many regards, right? You, you've been quoting these masters from the past, but on the other hand, it is so much needed and a breath of fresh air at a time when there is so much judgment and there is so much, um, you know, me versus you and thou shalt this and shalt not that that is um, happening in our world of social ferment and the social justice movements and all of our time, which, you know, start with really pure and good, I think, aspirations, wanting to create a better world and address injustice. And yet sometimes they've taken on a form which hasn't really allowed a lot of people to feel very inspired to go along with them, you know, in some cases. I, I don't know. I mean, that's just uh, something I'm kind of suspicious of. Is like, is there something missing in the movement making of our times today where this kind of an ethos could be brought in, you know, that creates more of a space for inspiration, for personal responsibility? Yeah, no, it's, it's very important because you have to be careful. You could have that righteous anger. And anger is anger, whether it's righteous or not. It, it, it's a hindrance. It, it gets in the way of us being able to be present and to see clearly. And so we can channel the anger and say, oh, I'm going to take the anger and channel it for good. I'm going to use that energy to create something good or to to bring more compassion and more wisdom into the situation. So, so it's not, so it's, yeah, it's definitely realizing that when we have these negative emotions, we call them, it, they referred to as the the five hindrances, you know, and you know, like sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, which is another way of saying apathy or depression, you know, low energy, and that really has to do with not having any interest in what's going on. You're just kind of spacing out, and then the worry, restlessness, people know, and then the doubt that those mindsets that when they are present, they have to be acknowledged and dealt with and we deal with them in a multiplicity of ways some sometimes we deal with them by by ignoring them or repressing them and that doesn't work what works is being able to embrace them and see them and then notice okay thought is in the mind so what's the antidote to that the antidote to that is to seek to investigate ask questions to explore bring your curiosity to bear but we know if we stay in doubt it's going to color everything and the results reflecting on it is not going to be good. So we can say, okay, there's doubt in mind, and we can direct our attention to something else, to the opposite of doubt, uh, wisdom or, or understanding or, or seeking to understand. I say, oh, yeah, I just need to let go of that and then focus on what I'm doing now in whatever way, but to divert attention. And then sometimes it's, as I get more mindful, then it's, okay, so now I need to get intimate with the doubt. Notice when there's doubt in the mind, how does it affect my body? How does it affect my ability to see? 
how does it affect my ability to feel connected to myself and others and start to explore it. So at some point, we have to get to the point where we get intimate with those hindrances, whether it's sensual desire or ill will or having low energy or apathy. And it's only by seeing it and understanding it that we're able to get free from it or to be able to not be be imprisoned or locked up by it. So I would say those five hindrances are ways of being locked up. Wonderful. Great framework for and you know, all of us to take back with us just uh, a reflection of your relationship with these five hindrances. George, you're a philosopher. That is um, vivid and very clear to us in the conversation we've had you know, already. And you're a practitioner as well. You're out there in the battlefield of life, you know, making incredible transformations happen at the very, very cutting edge of high performance. And I want to share just a couple of observations about George with you, with our listeners, so that you can see you know, the force of... Um, what is it that George has done to manifest these philosophies in very practical ways? And so, so there's this moment where Michael Jordan has quit, you know, basketball. He's playing minor league baseball, and um, you know, and it's a kind of a crisis and a struggle moment for the uh, Chicago Bulls. And then, um, you know, at that point, uh, I understand is when George Phil Jackson, you know, brought you in, and you know, it wasn't easy for the players to accept somebody coming in from. A certain place where it's not that you're going to make them practice harder, the craft of basketball, so to say, but you're going from the outer game to some kind of an inner game. And, you know, Phil Jackson has basically reflected in his book, 11 Rings, he says, George had a gift for demystifying meditation and was able to explain it in a language that made sense to the players. He also had an intuitive feel for the issues they were grappling with because of his friendship, you know, with uh, so many of these uh, elite athletes. And so, wow, like that is incredible for you to have come in at that crisis moment for a team that, you know, has been that point and will then get back to being the national champions. Can, can you talk a little bit about sort of what that challenge was like for, for you and for this group to meld and to take these outer warriors and make them kind of inner, inner warriors as well? Yes, so thank you. It's very uh, important. It was an amazing experience, and when I reflect on it, it's, I still learn from it. So at the time, at the setting the context, I was working at the, at the time we used to call it the Stress Reduction and Relaxation Program at the UMass Medical Center in Worcester, and it's a medical school. Now it's be, it's been referred to as Center for Mindfulness and whatnot, but this is going back to 1983, so this is going back almost 30 years, and Phil used to teach it, used to, uh, at a place called Omega, is this place in Rhinebeck, New York. He used to teach a, a program called uh, Beyond Basketball. So he would have, it was like a fantasy camp and people would come and he raised money for one of his teammates, Eddie Mass, who died of a heart attack. This was a way to raise money for, for his family. And John and Saki Centrelli, they used to do this, um, it's called Mindfulness Based Stress Reduction now. But they used to get do these trainings for healthcare workers, and they were there at the same time. So they knew Phil, and Phil was talking to them. And this was 1993; they had just won three NBA championships in a row. And Phil wanted to bring somebody in to help the players deal with the stress of success, because no one has ever, you know, had that kind of success. And you got people coming at you and whatnot. So when he first approached me, this was before MJ retired, before his father was murdered and whatnot. So we hadn't anticipated that. This was a proactive move. This this was Phil doing what he does, where he's always looking to to help 
his players, the body, the mind, the heart, and the soul. He saw them as whole people, and he wanted to give them all the tools they could ha- they could use for success. So when I got there, that crisis was not anticipated. That's not why I was going in there. I was going in there to help them deal with the stress of success. But once again, but when I got in there, I, it was like, okay, how can I serve? How can I help? And it's like, okay, so uh, this is, you got to embrace it. This is it. There's, there's something here. And so when I talked to the team, I talked about this idea of this is a crisis. And when there's a crisis, and I use it, I, I said in Eastern philosophy, when there's a crisis, it has two meanings. One meaning is danger, which we know about. The other meaning is opportunity. So we can create space between stimulus and response. And in that space, we get the freedom and choose. So I altered how they saw it. I said, okay, so this is an opportunity for people to step up. This is an opportunity for us to, to actually get stronger. And it's, it's like, it's less relate to it. If the glass is half empty, half full, both are right. But if we focus on half full, focus on it being an opportunity, then that's, that's when we change that. And then we talked about how we can be best selves. And so I talked to them about being a spiritual warrior, but let's put it in context. I went with Dr. J in college. So I've been around the pro game. I've been one of the most elite players of all time. So when I went in there, I had a level of street cred. And besides, I grew up just like a lot of those folks when, you know, me was Southern Baptist, but there was a lot of connection to them. And what I did was I just created a vision of possibility say, hey, we're here, but here's, we can go this way or we can go this way. And if we go this way, you know, you have to be a spiritual warrior. You have to be able to get comfortable being uncomfortable and you, it's just a great opportunity. So what do you choose? I suggest we go this way. We go for the gusto. We say, okay, this is going to be amazing. And then when I talk to them about being in flow and I say, what I'm teaching you is going to make you flow ready. You cannot enter flow. The more you try to enter flow, the more you won't. But if you do these certain things like being in the moment, managing the moment, being clear about what your goals are, and then getting immediate feedback and being willing to adjust and change, you know, to self-regulate your thoughts, feelings, behavior. Now, then I'm talking to them about, I didn't call it the masterpiece, but I was basically saying, you know, your wife for success. We have these abilities and adversity. Our latent abilities are going to express themselves, but it's having a certain mindset and realizing, oh, I've, this is what I did. This is how I overcame Substance abuse, this is how I overcame um, having chronic pain. And I used to play basketball, and I've been around the game. And and so and you want the flow. You, you want to be able to grow. You want the flow. You want to be able to go, grow. Let's do that. And so that's what I offered. And so it totally expanded uh, my role with them because I came in, and it was just, and I had full access. So I was in the locker room. I was all there. But to be honest with you, it was a part of me saying, okay, they just won three championships. What do I have to teach them? And that's when I just forgot myself to find myself and say, okay, my job here is to serve. And that's what I did. And when I forgot myself, I found myself and I just talked about sharing my experience, strength, and hope. This is how I dealt with adversity. I say, okay, uh, this is going to be great. There's an opportunity here and let's go from there. So that was a transformation and we were making it up as we went along. Phil and I would talk, and Phil had this uh, way of being. Not only was it when I was there, I had presentations with them, but a lot of times it was intuitive. It's like, okay, we got to talk about this. We have to talk about that. There was no one that had done it like this before. So I was 
making it up as we go along. I was like Indiana Jones, you know, like, uh, what are we going to do, Indy? <laughs> We're making it up as we go along. But we know what the principles are. The principles don't change. They're timeless and they're universal. And then what's the principles? Being, being in the moment, managing the moment, coming with right view, coming with this attitude of, you know, there's a lawfulness here, and we just have to align ourselves with the way things work. This is a friendly universe. There's a lawfulness to it, and we have a way more power than we ever imagined. And something happens, we have to choose, but we want to choose based on being present and being compassionate, being loving, seeking to understand. That's the most ultimate stress reducer is understanding. And, and you understand by reflecting on experience and being willing to change. And so this idea of getting the feedback, embracing it, and saying, how am I going to relate to myself? How can I access my masterpiece and offer it to the world? In this case, my team. In my case, whoever I'm working with, my, I won't even call it client, my friends, that I'm, I'm offering to serve. Roland uh, Lazenby is an NBA writer, and he, he writes about how he says, Michael Jordan in particular was very skeptical, but over time he began to understand the clarity and mindfulness and importance of, of learning to focus and, and perform in, in the moment. And then you recall yourself, you know, Jordan has been one of your best students. You know, you've said he got what I was doing. Can you talk a little bit about sort of both him and Kobe as two like larger than life figures, really having had a profound impact on modern day basketball and um, how they were changing and transforming in their collaborations with you? Yeah, so my thing was <laughs> with them is just sort of making suggestions and, and just watching them. But when Michael, I had been working with the Bulls for 18 months, and he came back when he came back in March of 95. And I remember shortly after he came back, they came to Boston. And one of the rituals we have is when the team comes to Boston, usually Boston Garden was very, you know, the garden was not available for for shoot-arounds, you know, each team has a shoot-around in the morning. They go over a couple hours, go through the, the plays, and then they shoot around on the, on the court that they're going to be playing on. Well, in Boston, especially in those days, in the 90s, the garden wasn't available. So we would meet in the hotel and in the conference room, and uh, the coaches would go over film. If, if you work with any athletic teams, you know they watch a lot of film and, and you know, observe the other team and talk about what they're going to run and that sort of thing. So we would have this. This was a ritual. We would go through that. Then the coaches would leave and it would just be me and the players. And I'd have maybe 45 minutes or so where I'd take them through some exercises, have a little talk, and we'd do a little practice and whatnot. And so when MJ came, we did what I call awareness of breathing, where we're just sitting and closing eyes and just tuning into the fact that we're sitting and breathing. You might even say we're conspiring together, which is a positive thing. We're breathing in and out. And I remember MJ looking around, watching people, seeing what they were doing, and then he just closed his eyes. And then that was it. And my conversation with them, he realized that I was helping them get to a level where did they could start catching up with him. So my thing was really helping them to understand why he was able to do things that he was able to do, but also to talk about there's another level. And he's always interested in another level. So now I could offer him some ways. And plus, Dr. J was like MJ before MJ was MJ. When we were in college at UMass, Dr. J couldn't go anywhere because the, the people would come around and crowd. He had that charisma and people would just come to him. So I was probably one of the few people on the planet to could understand what it was like for Michael to be trapped in this hotel room and not be able to go anywhere and having people come at him. So I think my 
experience, my relationship with Dr. J really gave me a lot of street cred. And then Phil trusted me to be in there. And so, and then just them being able to understand that I was helpful. And the thing about them is they won't dismiss anything out of hand. They'll look and see if it's true. And my role, my job is to give them a direct experience of the teaching so that they know it. it's not superficial. It's, it's real. It's about being in the moment. And so, because they're committed to a level of excellence and they have this ability to, to experience cognitive dissonance or discomfort allows them to be more coachable. And I remember people asking me and me reflecting on, are they coachable because they're good or are they good because they're coachable? And my suspicion is, and my answer to that is because they're pursuing excellence and wisdom. It's like me. And they can see it because they're looking for it. See, if you don't believe it, you won't see it. I was in the company of certain monastics um, just a few weeks ago. And um, so, you know, here are these people dedicating their life to spiritual advancement and um, and kind of like a mystic growth. And yet they were talking about how much they really appreciate world champion athletes because what they really see in them is this fierce kind of commitment to the pursuit of excellence. And that is something that they're seeking to do in their spiritual life. And so, so there's that quality that really inspires them in, in world champion athletes. And uh, I found that so beautiful because, you know, here they are pursuing, you know, life which is so much more, you know, so to say, sedentary, pulled back, you know, more about sort of the inner life. And yet what they're saying is like, wow, you know, these world champion athletes can really, you know, light a fire in me for my spiritual quest. Yes. Well, I think that's one of the things that draws folks to athletic competition, whether it's the Olympics or whatever. Because you see somebody in real time expanding the boundaries of what we think are possible. So you think about that. And the thing I love about sports that's really helpful is that there's beginning, middle, and end focus. And you can see it in real time unfolding the pursuit of a goal, of the journey towards a championship or towards uh, towards the championship or towards your whatever it is, whether you're an individual athlete or, or playing a team sport. You can definitely see that, but you can see... But there's something about about being in flow. There's something about just really just honestly and fully expressing yourself in the moment, especially when you have tremendous pressure or tremendous so much intensity, but the pressure overcome that and to do things that are not easy to do. People recognize that. And so they could see that. And so and it's interesting because I really was, I really have been focused to teaching, learning, not just uh, learning things. So if you think about my process over the last coming up on 39 years, I've averaged over a book a week during that time, but I've done a lot of practice. I've lived in a meditation cell for six years. I've done a lot of practicing, even 90 day retreats, but I've done a lot of other practicing working with executives and CEOs and corporations and groups. I've done a lot of studying and work and have experience going in and helping them to find themselves, or when I talk about the me and the we, and developing elite teams and individuals. And so I've had that honor of doing that. And a lot of that comes out of my own experience as a leader and having people that I had a developing. And I wouldn't say, I don't like the word manage and lead and lead. So yeah, and so it's, I've been doing this for, for decades and, and it's inspiring and I'm learning and I'm evolving. And, and I believe that if you want to learn something, you got to teach it. You um, on on this on this uh, pushing the boundaries of 
what you can achieve. You have this beautiful distinction you make between peak performance and pure performance, you know, and, and you talk about how peak performance is stationary and pure performance, on the other hand, is is in flow. I love that distinction, and uh, it was it was very thought provoking. And at a time when, generally speaking, peak performance is a very fashionable thing for people to pursue, I think it'd be really valuable if you could uh, weigh in on this, George, a little bit. Like, what what is you know, the distinction, and what's really critical, you know, here for us to understand and appreciate about pure performance? So, to me, it's like peak performance and pure performance is like, and it's predicated on a Maslow's peak experience, right? But, you know, we think we have a peak experience and that's a peak experience, but there's another level. So when you say it's peak, it's almost like you reach the peak. Now, I'm not talking, I'm talking about the, the, the linguistics, you know, what words mean and whatnot. And there's something about pure performance where you're just performing and there's always another level, but you're not settling. You're not, it's a difference between being like a, a static, like I, I read, and I forget where I read it from, but we relate to our human experience as fixed points. And the reality of who we are, we are ever-changing events. And so if you think about it that way, you reach a peak. When you say you reach a peak, that's on some level, the word means that you can't go any higher, the peak of the mountain. So that's where, I, that's where for me, it's like, yeah, pure performance is more static and stationary, and also it's not identifying a peak out here as much as it's identifying your previous peak in yourself or your previous, you know, so I say you're not competing against somebody out there, you're competing against your previous best self. But it's the reality that knowing that there's always another level and that it's fluid, it's, it's fluid, it's dynamic, it's, it's not stationary. And so I would just, and it's interesting because I'm describing it differently than I normally would because I'm in a different perspective, but it's, it's about, it's really talking about this idea of, you know, not thinking that you peaked or, you know, okay. so it's like, okay, if you, if you scale the, the tallest mountain uh, in the world, I think that, and you know, Mount Everest, whatever it is, then, okay, there's no other taller mountain, you know, that's it. That's the peak. But what I'm saying is, no, there's another mountain. There's another mountain. And so this is linguistic, this language, because people could use that word peak and mean different meanings for it. But what I'm saying is, there's no peaking because we don't know what it's unlimited. It's awful. I think, you know, it's a incredibly valuable food for thought for our listeners. And, and hopefully those who don't immediately get it, I, I would appeal to you to just um, keep this thought in the back of your mind. And you just never know when it actually is, you know, lights a bulb in your mind and you realize, oh my God, you know, this is what George meant when he said that. I'm, I'm feeling it now. One of the ways to learn from what you just said is the idea that, um, Maybe it's premature when you declare, you know, too early a victory and start to put your boots up because you feel like, you know, this is the best I could ever be on this. So, like, there's nothing more to grow and do. That's one part of what you're saying, I think. But there's another part, you know, as well that I, I think I can draw from that, which is that maybe you're not meant to slot your life into, like, 17 different, like, buckets. And, like, this is the athlete part of me. This is the relationship part of me. This is the, you know, public speaking part of me. And this is this part of me or what have you. And when you're open to moving away from this notion of a peak performance, which, you know, would apply, you know, materially and physically to just one of those parts of who you are, one of those lanes in which you're racing, you know, when you walk away from that kind of a, you know, kind of view uh, of what performance and accomplishment and you know, the pursuit of excellence means to you, then correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm, you know, my hypothesis is that it starts to 
dissolve these boundaries of these different parts of who you are. And this state of pure performance becomes like a moment by moment discipline that applies to anything and everything you do. And so, you know, I might retire from Olympian sports, but that doesn't you know, make me have less meaning and fulfillment and challenge in life because I'm just not redirecting that same energy and consciousness to something else. Yes, I like the way you phrase it. And that that's exactly it. it it's like Mikai Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow. He talks about the autotelic personality. And what he means by that is you do something for the activity in and of itself. So like you said, so in your role as an athlete, you're doing this in your role as a, you know, maybe as a leader or as a dad or son or whatever, you're doing something else. And what he's saying is it doesn't matter what you're doing. What matters is the intrinsic value you get from being fully deployed and fully expressed in the moment, the peak or the pure experiences doing it for no reason and to express it with a freedom, with being unlocked where you're not doing the shoulds or you're not doing anything else. So one way of looking at from a psychological point of view, one way of looking at, the, at being in the zone of flow is being spontaneous. So you don't even know what you're going to do. So you're in this creative energy. And so when I talk about pure performance, it's like you're performing because you want to uh, briefly talked about martial arts as honestly expressing yourself and you're letting it's an inside out thing. And you start to understand that you meet what you mirror, that what's out here is a reflection of what's in here. So if you keep changing what's in here and you know, there's another level, then you keep evolving. And like I said, being a ever changing event versus being a fixed point. And you know, cause there's no being, there's a becoming. You were always moving, you know, you can't step in the same river twice. And so it's really more about understanding that it's that wherever you go, there you are. And it's the same drill is can you be fully engaged, fully present and doing what you're doing, giving your gift to the world out of your own potentialities, out of your own uniqueness, which is unlimited. I want to invite you to um, also shed light on another very powerful part of your philosophy, given again, that you worked with these, uh, you know, world champion athletes, I think it particularly thing to me, bears some kind of reflection, you know, for us here and some opportunity for us to learn from you on this, because, you know, you're talking about sports where there is a score ultimately very quantifiable that is put on the board and one team will, you know, will get the shining medal, you know, versus the other. And yet you say, you say the nature of healthy competition is that we bring out the best in each other. Productive competition involves always recognizing our opponent's humanity. And I love this phrase. You know, you say, what I mean by that, this is so, to me, important, you know, for today's time, because we are starting to use this word about like a human-centered organization and, you know, respecting humanity and all so much. But you clarify that. You say, productive competition involves always recognizing our opponent's humanity. What I mean by that is not just that we are all human, though we are, Beyond that, far beyond, each of us is endowed with divinity. Each of us is a child of God. We are all emanations of creation and we are connected to each other in this way. Each of us is an essential and irreplaceable being. You know, that is so beautiful. Yes, uh, I believe that. And, and you can see it. And it's interesting because I, I had this conversation. And one of the things I noticed with some of the athletes that I worked with over the years, and when they're competing with people, you have people say, well, when the opponent falls up, don't help them up. 
I see my guys helping people out. They're understanding that, yeah, we're competing after the game. And, and they do this anyway. They have relationships and whatnot. And I remember some coaches criticizing his own play. I won't mention the coach because he had a friendship with MJ. When he said, well, he's an enemy. You got to be mean and nasty. And, and that's a different energy where you have to. And it's challenging because you can't always. So let's say you play in a way where you are hating that opponent. Now you're playing against your brother. Now, some people will say, well, on the court, I'm just going to compete against him. But come on, man. There's going to be people you like. And then when you're doing the hate thing, it's affecting your ability. And that's another hindrance. It's affecting your ability to not only be present, but it's going to affect your immune system. It's going to affect your ability to see clearly, your ability to have a rhythm or flow. So we start thinking about it in ways that opens us up. This is all about being unlocked, not having any restrictions. But I'm not saying being uh, you know out of control but being in control to be able to to express yourself honestly i want to test another hypothesis on that with you the idea that has been emerging more and more for me uh, and by the way the, the place where i first discovered it was you know this um, museum in berlin that is called the topography of terror where they document the rise and fall of the third reich you know hitler and you know his thing and in that at one point i discovered that those two the end of the Second World War, the Allies are starting to be on the ascendancy and they're invading Germany right now and kind of marching towards Berlin. And Hitler realizes his, his days are now, you know, countable. And so he declares something called his like Nero's decree, where he basically requires all the um, generals of the German army to destroy all German infrastructure, you know, schools, hospitals, production plants, highways. And one of his generals who actually hears this, you know, from him, as an order that he's meant to go out and broadcast to the other generals in the army. You know, he listens to it and he braces himself like, what is, you know, what is the Fuhrer doing? Because while it's true that we might now lose this war, uh, why would we want like there to be such suffering and misery for our people that there is no infrastructure like hospitals and schools and things? So he asks, you know, Hitler, why is it that you want us to do this? And Hitler says, because the good Germans are already dead. And uh, this general, he... Um, respectfully nods his head and reassures Hitler that it will be done and then he disobeys him. He actually doesn't go and share this with the other generals and it was not executed, of course. And within a few days of that, Hitler's committed suicide and the game is over. And the thought that left with me, which I want to test with you, is that what Hitler had done over the course of his unfortunate, painful life was that he had become very specialized in knowing how to hate. And initially it was for the Jews and for the gays and for his political opponents and, and others that he didn't like. And, you know, those are people he hated. So there was a part of his brain which specialized in taking joy in other people's pain and he would park some people there. But what would happen is that at some point he was in a position to, as soon as he was disappointed or hurt with somebody, like in this case, perhaps the German people for betraying his cause and his movement by, by not being able to fight victoriously, now he parked all of the German people there into that same hate circle that he'd built because he specialized in those neurons in hate. And so perhaps if we were to draw a milder conclusion of that for our own selves, I mean, almost most of, not all of us are not like Hitler. But at the end of the day, when you start creating a real estate in your brain where you start like hating some, an opponent, an enemy, you know, all of that, then sometimes you might get pissed off with your own teammate, you know, with perhaps your own self. And for a moment, you park that teammate or that self into that, circle of hate that you are so good at, you know, activating in yourself. 
And so it runs the risk that it starts to metastasize and starts to become just part of who you are. Every time you're irritated or annoyed or judgmental, you like to inflict pain. You, you become it because it consumes you. And so I talk about it in the book about the two wolves and the grandfather, Cherokee grandfather, explaining to his grandson that there's two wolves inside of me for for simplicity, we'll say fear, which includes hate, and is one wolf and love is the other wolf. And he says, not only is this battle going on inside of me, but it's going on inside of you and every human being. And the grandson says, grandfather, which one will win? And the grandfather said, the one I feed. And so if you keep feeding the fear wolf and you keep feeding the hate, then it's going to be predominant and that's going to uh, block out or repress the love. And when you get consumed by it and then it's, and so it becomes, it consumes you. So now you got on the hate glasses, everything you see is hate. So instead of seeing people or seeing that, that they are worthy of living, you just want to burn everything. And, and of course, one of the things, if you think about it, if you talk about the self-image and one of the ways we deal with the fear of death or, or being out of control is we adhere to authoritarianism or authority figures, or we, you know, we conform, we just hide in plain sight, but we want to get rid of the sense of self. Uh, There's one way of escaping from freedom, and that is by destructing, destroying your sense of self so that you're no longer experiencing the fear of death or, you know, there's no self there. So you want to get to know self, not in the way that you get to know self where you realize it's just an illusion, but no self where you just blow it up or you just destroy it. So this could be suicide violence, but it was like he was in, he was a, he was expressing this idea of just destroying everything because if you destroy yourself, and of course that's what he did, he committed suicide. That was one way escape being responsible is by destroying everything, especially himself. So that's just my interpretation of it, but it's, it's consuming and it gets to be a habit and you can see it. I mean, you can see it in this country and the United States there's you have this uh, grievance politics and, and destroying, taking away. And that, that's a dead giveaway. It's like, you, you know, are you devoted to destruction or power or are you devoted to love? When you're devoted to love, that's productive, being productive. That means embracing, giving people freedom, embracing everybody, not taking away and not blowing stuff up. Wow, that's um, truly inspiring, truly inspiring. Um, George, I realize we have only limited time. And I want to highlight for our listeners, for those who only know about George's accomplishments and his very inspiring, illuminating, mind-opening philosophy, as you've just shared, that you know, you had such humble roots, born 10th in a family of 13 children, uh, growing up, you know, in very humble means, poverty really in many regards, um, an alcoholic father, and and then growing on from there to struggling with alcoholism and with drug addiction in your own life at an early stage, but finding that spark, finding that moment and healing yourself, you know, from there. And and it's just incredible how many lives you've transformed over the course of your such a beautiful journey that you've been on. So there's so much more to unpack, you know, and I, I realize we only have so much time. So Raj, could you just as you as you look back at your roots and how you've evolved and grown and what is the one thing that you feel most grateful for that as a choice you made at a certain point in time 
which you feel was the most transformational to you? Yes, it's, I call it AOF method of motivation, and that is ass on fire, <laughs> you know, so got to a place where I couldn't keep doing what I was doing and I could not not do it. And so when I actually, a friend of mine came by my house and he invited me to go to an AA meeting with him. And when I went today, then I looked at him and said, wait a minute, this guy's, you know, he doesn't have a problem. He's, you know, what's going on? I was very intrigued. So I saw the possibility, the vision of freedom. He represented that. And so when I went to the AA meeting and then I started understanding that it's, you know, uh, it's a spiritual thing. I had to connect it somehow greater than myself or what Victor Frankl would call self-transcendence. I had to forget myself to find myself. So I just said, okay, my life is unmanageable by me. I had to surrender. I had to let go. But it wasn't like I was surrendering like I was giving up my my power. It was more like I was surrendering so that I can embrace my power. So it was more of an embrace of my inner power instead of looking for John Ballycorn or something outside of myself, realizing that, you know, I had a divine spark. And once I accessed that masterpiece within and realized that I there's an energy fought in the universe that I can connect to and prayer and meditation, you know, how I think and whatnot, I just, I just re rediscovered myself. I rediscovered the masterpiece within that divine spark. I became a caterpillar crawling into the crystallis and struggling to get out. And then the struggle gave me the strength to fly. Uh, you, you've said once, you said, we become what we think about. Success is a progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Yes, or, or goal, yes. I need to do that. I'm going to become a perfectionist. Progress, not perfection. I had to learn that over and over again. Suzuki Roshi says, we find perfection through imperfection. So I've been dealing with that. So that definition is helpful because all the research says that we're happy first, then we're successful, but we act as if we will be successful, we'll be happy when we are successful. But the reality is if you have a progressive realization of a worthy ideal, and now you're getting in the Lao Tzu territory where a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. So each step can be celebrated and seen as a progressive realization of moving towards that thousand mile journey. Let me end with um, just one glimpse that you can give us into your everyday life. So what for you is the most um, treasured, most uh, looked forward to, most precious moment of the day? Pockets of stillness, silence, and spaciousness. So it's just getting connected, getting with myself and being able to, you know, through prayer, meditation, I read, I do all sorts of things, but it's really getting back to myself, getting back to identifying with that that embracing the greatness within me, which could, you know, it's it's like that divine spark, is that spirituality, is that feeling of love. I guess I would say love. Yeah. It's just realizing that there's love there. I just have to be still and know. And a lot of times it's really as simple as just sitting and just being with myself and just noticing I and the other one, you know, the, the spirit moves through me. I'm just a channel. I get out of the way and allow that energy, that love to flow through me. So it's really about what Edgar Casey talked about, attunement and application. So it's letting the love flow through me, and then that's the attunement, and then the application is when I go and interact with people, even with my inner self, to be loved, to be loving. That's the application, to be loving. Sometimes somebody comes to mind that I 
had issues with that I can forgive them. So I would say it's it's a teaching that Jesus talked about. He said, love everything and continual forgiveness. You know, I'd love you to be ending on this notion of love because we started with the Joseph Campbell quote, this notion of the unique divine spark in you and make sure you know that and recognize that, discover that, uncover that, be your own true self. And, and now we're talking about love and I'm reminded of this Rumi quote, you know, where he says, love is the bridge between you and everything. And so you discover that spark and you build this bridge with everything then what was your gift becomes a universal gift, right? In some ways. Yeah. And only by, it's like, it's interesting. And I'll share with this. So I, I did two podcasts, I think, uh, with the School of Greatness with Lewis Howes, and it was the Tim Ferriss Fart podcast. And they both asked me three things that I know for sure were questions. And I answered this, them the same way. And I didn't realize I had done that. And so the three things I said was the only time we have is now. The only one you could be is yourself, and all you need is love. What a beautiful um, thought to uh, close our conversation out with. George, uh, Godspeed, wishing you really uh, yeah, a beautiful, joyous, and very productive life and many decades ahead of further, yeah, just invaluable contribution to bringing East and West together in the advancement of human civilization with all that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, so thank you for saying that. I really appreciate the way you created the listening and your questions were really helpful. It really helped me express myself in a way that uh, that was really beautiful. I'm I'm so so grateful and honored. You know. Okay, okay, my man, and and just to put out there, it's like it doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to be an athlete. You have this tremendous ability inside of you. This masterpiece is a minus part. And you can access it and develop it. It's the inside job and you can do it. And to the degree that you do it will be expressed in you offering something to the world out of your own potentialities and your own uniqueness. You're going to be a gift to the world till your final breath. I can see that. I can see that. You're on a mission. You're on fire, George. Hey, man, I'm, you know, I'm just the messenger. <laughs>